Well, again, I want to welcome all of you here for our evening worship service. As we come together to worship the Lord, continue to study what it means to worship God and developing a sound biblical theology and a biblical foundation uh, for worship. As I emphasize all of the time when we come into the presence of the Lord, that we need to make sure that we are spiritually prepared and spiritually cleansed. And so we need to make sure that we have uh, taken the proper steps to self-examination and, if necessary, to confess sin. We come to worship a holy God, and as Alan has reminded us today, he is a unique and distinct God, and that is played out in each of his attributes. He's one of a kind, and there is nothing like our God, no one like him at all. And so we need to take the time, I think also in silent prayers, we refocus, put our attention upon the Lord, and remind ourselves that we are here for this very important purpose of bringing honor, glory, stressing the significance, the importance that God is the sine qua non of our lives. So we will spend a few moments in silent prayer and then I will take us before the throne of grace. Our Father, we are learning the seriousness, the significance of worship, worshiping you, bringing honor and glory to you, stressing the importance that you play in our lives, that you are the central feature in every aspect of our life and that we are here to serve you in this life and to serve you we need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ that we might be well trained well equipped servants that we may be willing to go where you send us and do what you would have us to do but first we need to learn to think as you would have us to think to think biblically So, Father, we thank you for these men that are here to teach us and for the many years that you have spent in their lives uh, honing their understanding of Scripture and for each of us that are here. For many of us have been in the Word for many years, and each day we grow day by day, and we're thankful that you uh, work so intimately with us through God the Holy Spirit to bring us close to yourself and to prepare us for not only a lifetime but an eternity of service. And we pray that all that we say and do this evening will honor and glorify you. In Christ's name, amen. At this time, David Roseland is going to come up and talk about some of the uh, plans coming up for the, for the teaching sessions, for the, teaching, for the classes, the courses at Chafer Seminary. I want to thank uh, Barb Apple and Beth Penner for putting together the handouts you have. They're on your seat. Um, <clears throat> hopefully they're not on your seat anymore. And um, if they are, just go ahead and grab them and uh, pull these out. Let me uh, do something. I like, to, I like to hear this from time to time. I like, I like that sound. Um, but you've got a hard copy of the course offerings for fall and spring of the next, uh, the next year, the next uh, uh, academic year. And I just want to uh, remind you what uh, 
awesome opportunities there are in front of you if you will take some time and uh, and take some classes and encourage others because this is a theological seminary. Chafer Theological Seminary is in full swing uh, training the next generation of Bible expositor, pastor, teachers, and uh, those also who are interested in uh, an in-depth study of the Word. Uh, Dr. Woods gave an incredible summary today of our seminary's mission and distinctives. And uh, this in front of you reflects what that looks like in uh, the next two semesters terms of bringing out those distinctives and a couple of things I want to highlight for you in the fall semester you have the president of the seminary who is a research uh, scholar uh, a pastor teacher and uh, and of course our president uh, teaching a course that he's researched for several years and uh, published on and you've read many of you his book uh, the coming kingdom and uh, the course is a theology course um, that is kind of the culmination of a lot of uh, of eschatology on the kingdom and covenants. And that is available to all of us this fall, and it's an incredible privilege. And I know, you know, Andy's young, and we could do it later. And you don't know when he's going to do this again. And I don't know when he's going to do this again, as often as I can try to, uh, and others can try to ask him to do it. But uh, if, you're, if you have any interest in studying with one of the leading scholars in, in dispensational eschatology in our time, this is, a, this is a great opportunity. So that's available to you. If your church is a, a supporting church, then you take the class tuition-free. There is a fee associated. It's a nominal fee associated with uh, taking care of office uh, materials and, uh, and coordination. Um, but, uh, but that's a huge, uh, opportunity. Our church is a supporting church and, um, our church family, anyone in our church family takes courses for free and, uh, it's just an awesome, uh, opportunity. You can see a lot of these, um, courses for the fall have been filled some for the spring uh, and fall both have not been filled yet but we're working on it i've been approached by several professors uh, today that this this list is looking more robust than it looks on paper today but that's always how it is as we're attempting to uh, see who's going to teach what for the fall. Uh, the way we come up with the courses we're going to teach is we look at the student body, who needs a class, what do they need to go th forward in their degree program, who's in the shoot, who who needs the next thing. And uh, Bev does all that legwork, Bever Beverly Penner, who wanted to be with us and was ill this week. And so uh, she is uh, just such a godsend and all that uh, happens with Chafer, she's got uh, her hand on it as, as our office manager and other things she does. But... Um, I just uh, ask you to pray for her, but also uh, I have great gratitude to the Lord for her work. And uh, so that's how we come up with the classes is who needs what and what has been asked, what have people asked for, who's available to teach, so what classes could we uh, put out there. So I want you to consider that uh, course that Dr. Woods is teaching. And the, the other thing I want to point out is um, if you've never taken a seminary course, this is an awesome opportunity this fall. Ray Mondragon is going to teach Bible study methods and hermeneutics which is BE 301. It's our introductory Bible exposition course. And Bible exposition, um, some of you may or may not know what that is in an academic setting. Chaver Seminary is one of the few schools in the world that actually has this as a discipline, as, a, as its own field. And it, we're a Bible exposition school, it turns out. And that's how we want to be. Bible exposition is the nexus between the study of exegesis of the original text in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek 
and systematic theology, the deliverances of correct interpretation of the text. The nexus is the Bible exposition effort. It isn't systematic theology, and it's not exegesis uh, per se, but it's where they meet, and it's where we study hermeneutics. It's where we study how the authors have constructed their entire arguments. And I'd never heard of any such thing when I got to seminary. And it changed my life. My BE 301 experience was called BE 101 at Dallas Seminary. And it turned me on to the ability to study the Bible for myself for the first time, I really was given tools to do that. And that's what we're uh, excited about with BE301. So it's a great place to start. And Ray uh, has taught this course many times, and uh, he's really excited uh, to present this. Dr. Ward, Clay Ward, is going to teach um, the, uh, the, the course on Acts through the Pauline Epistles. Um, uh, we will start Greek 1 again, Greek 1 and 2, fall and spring. So if you haven't, uh, if, you've, if you've wanted to learn how to read the Bible in the New Testament, uh, Greek, that's, and, and begin your studies in Greek. And how many years of Greek have you had? Well, maybe it's zero, but let's let this year be the first one. Anthony Griego has agreed to teach us uh, Greek 1 and 2 again this next year. And um, if anyone wants to take beginning Hebrew, I've just, I'm finishing up the second semester of doing that. And I'm offering uh, beginning Hebrew again, OT 101, 102, in the fall and spring. And uh, most of you, I've probably invited you to already, I've already talked to you about how you need to learn to read the Bible uh, in Hebrew. And uh, so you've already felt that pressure for me, so I won't, uh, I won't talk about it too much. But um, I do encourage you to take advantage of these things. Charlie is again offering Christian Framework 1, Charlie Clough. And uh, again, I don't know if he's going to do that next year, but I know he's planning to do that this year. So if you would like to take the Bible framework at the seminary level with Charles Clough, this is the time for you uh, to jump on that. And finally, Jeremy Thomas has been working uh, on his course on dispensationalism for a year now and, and well, all his, all his ministry life. But this last year, he's really been refining this course, and we're really excited about him offering it. So please consider. And finally, I want you to save the date. There's a lot you can check out on the spring page. But in the spring, uh, Robbie Dean Pastor Dr. Dean, Pastor Dr. Robbie Dean is going to teach his history of uh, church history course. It's Church History 1, and then in the following fall of 2021, he'll teach the second semester. And as he said, it is Paul to y'all. It is the, the history of Paul to the, the church today uh, in two semesters. And uh, he's been studying this all his ministry life, and uh, I don't know if it's right to say it's one of his uh, specializations because Robbie does everything, but uh, it really is a passion for him, and, um, and I'm excited to see him do this. I'm going to take it as an audit. Uh, you know, I, I can audit everything. I'm on the board, but... Um, <laughs> board members. But um, so... Uh, just to consider, this is a, a lot of great opportunities here. I'm very excited to see all the activity, all the energy, all that's being put forth in the, uh, in the efforts of our uh, professors. And uh, just ask you, please pray for, uh, for the school. Pray for the preparation. You don't hear it right now, but somebody's uh, somewhere clicking along on a, a keyboard, uh, typing out the, their notes for their next lesson. Um, and there's a lot that goes into that. And so uh, please just... Uh, 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 consider signing up and definitely consider praying for Chafer Seminary. Thank you. Yes, please take your seats. <laughs> the over section over here, please. Once more into the breach here, uh, I think what we could have done after 
uh, David spoke about the seminary is we should have just passed the plates. Uh, well done, David. Um, what I'd like to do is have us turn to probably the most familiar passage uh, in Bible churches, uh, maybe even uh, Baptist churches, because I remember it from growing up in the Armouth Baptist Church, uh, rural church in uh, Iowa. But it's 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 9, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. And um, I remember hearing this passage, and it was always comforting to me, that um, there was no requirement for giving. Or that was my interpretation of this. We are no longer under the law, so we are not under a system of tithing. And Paul uh, is teaching giving uh, through uh, chapters 8, 9, and 10 here. Uh, And I'm not certain that that was Paul's idea for us to read this verse and then say, glad I'm not under any requirement here. The verse, 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, and I'm reading from the New King James Version, so let each one of us give as he purposes or determines, decides in his heart, That's heart, not liver. So as he determines in his heart, not reluctantly or not grudgingly or of necessity, not under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver is the word we have here, but it's really gracious, generous, or willing giver. And... I think that that's it's a wonderful uh, it's a wonderful passage, but I've often wondered why we start at verse seven. Why not verse begin at verse six? I think that gives this verse seven a much richer understanding of what Paul, as being inspired by God the Holy Spirit, expects us. To understand. And that is, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Well, now who in the world wants to, to reap sparingly? I grew up on a farm. I wasn't really born on the farm, but I was, that was where my parents lived when I was born. And uh, it wasn't a large farm, but for 13 years, I can tell you that the more we sowed on the property, the more we reaped. Whether it was corn or oats or beans or wheat, whatever it was. And I think that uh, what Paul is trying to tell us here is in your spiritual life, if you'd like to have a life that is 
uh, sparingly, then uh, that's that that's your spiritual life. But what we what he really wants us to understand is that the spiritual life should not be one that is sparingly in any in any manner. He says, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Um, without saying it, I think Paul is saying, giving is an important part of your spiritual life. And we should desire a bountiful life. And there's one way to get there. And that's by sowing bountifully. And there are many who would say, well, you know, I don't, I don't have that much. Well, this, he's not giving us an amount. It's what you determine, what you're able to give. Um, I think the Apostle Paul maybe answers that question for us if we say, I really don't have that much. If we turn to to Philippians, Philippians 4, I think this is sort of a companion uh, passage. Philippians 4, verse 17. There's a... a lot to, as we like to say, we like. There's a lot to unpack here, but we'll just jump right in the middle of it. Uh, Philippians four verse seventeen says, "Not that I seek the gift." Isn't that amazing? Paul was very often in need, but he says to the Philippians, to whom he was thanking, he was thanking them for giving. But he says, not that I seek the gift. I'm not trying to get uh, to encourage you to give more, even though he, he needs it. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. He was saying that your gift to me, yes, it is to me but it is really accounted to you. And then verse 19, and my God shall supply all your needs. And I think some of you have heard, and I think it's an excellent translation, is and my God shall resupply. He shall resupply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And according to his glory, he's never going to run short. In this, in the uh, military, we'd every now and then see NIS, not in stock. Doesn't happen with God. Therefore, tonight, as we have the opportunity to support the seminary, uh, we will uh, offer you the opportunity I think that's what it's, it's part of our spiritual life. It's an opportunity to give, to support God's ministries. And I think that if you are um, 
filling out a check, I think it was to West Houston Bible Bible Church. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the way you've blessed us, and we're thankful for the opportunity that we have to reciprocate in love to you for what you've done for us. And we know that you've given us the indescribable gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're thankful again, Father, for our opportunity to give tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I told Robbie I was just getting comfortable over there. <laughs> so I'd come up here and close in prayer. <clears throat> Thank you so much for the music, singing. <clears throat> Now we need to take a look at God's Word, so let's have a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we pray that you would speak to us because we, your servants, are listening. And I pray that we would see more in your holy Word each time we open it so that we might grow more and more in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. <clears throat> All too frequently in the life of the church, there are inexplicable tragedies that throw the church into a bit of a loop. There are things that happen that are very hard to explain. And sometimes uh, people do get discouraged and disillusioned by what it is that has happened. We had a young woman as a student a few years ago at the seminary, and she was not well. She was waiting for a transplant, and she was such a faithful, loving, devoted Christian caught the heart of all the student body, prayed for her for two years, and finally the they found the proper transplant that they could use, and the organ was flown in, and she was taken to the hospital and had the transplant, and she recovered marvelously. Um, she came back to class and there was a whole new life in her and she just was so thrilled and people were praising the Lord for this uh, provision and this deliverance and then she died. The students had a hard time with that. Praying and praying and praying for two years and then the provision comes and then the rejoicing for uh, a while and then all of a sudden uh, it seems all for naught. Years ago in the seminary when I was first starting to teach we had a young student from Africa. He was an exceptionally great student. He had been an administrator in his Bible college in Africa and he came to the seminary and just loved being there, got along with everybody, wonderful spirit, and uh, he proceeded to do the four years Master of Theology. 
stayed there and did the three years of the Doctor of Theology and uh, was eager to get back home and take up his role as one of the administrators of this Bible college. And uh, we missed him because he was so delightful to be around, but we figured after seven years, maybe it's time for him to get back to his ministry. And so he went back to Africa, and a week later he drowned swimming in a lake. You stop and ask, what was that seven years for? What was what was God's plan in all of this? And and there aren't easy answers, but uh, there were a lot of uh, disappointments and a lot of lots of sadness and grief and lots of questions in places where the Christians are not strong in their faith. This could be very discouraging, very disillusioning. If there's a strong enough faith, they'll have the questions, but the answers won't be just these pet answers that everybody gives. They don't work. We want to look at a similar situation, perhaps the epitome of this problem, in the Gospel of Luke. I would invite you to turn with me to Luke 24, the very end of the Gospel where we can see this little drama unfolding in the in a marvelous little narrative that is filled with theology and instruction for the church this is the story of the two disciples who are going home to Emmaus um, on resurrection sunday This is the afternoon of the first day of the week, uh, just when the whole weekend was over and uh, Jesus has been crucified and these men are heading back to Emmaus, which is not very far, about a seven-mile walk, and it wouldn't take long to make that journey. The narrative is given to us in three movements. Uh, The first movement is going to be from sadness to disillusionment. And that's what we'll look at first, which will cover verses 13 through 20. We read in the account, Now the same day, this is the Resurrection Sunday, the same day two of them, of the disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, literally threw in with them. He just joined in the conversation and they're walking along. And... and, uh, but they were kept from recognizing him. Jesus is doing something here supernatural. He wants to reveal who he is to them at the right moment. He doesn't want to reveal himself too early because he wants to hear from them why they are sad, why are they discouraged, what is the problem that they have, uh, and he will ask these pointed questions. T.S. Eliot has a wonderful line in one of his choruses. Uh, 
Beware of the stranger who knows how to ask questions. <laughs> That's the Lord. He never asked a question just to gather information. Why would he? He knows everything. He wanted to hear from them the statement of their faith and the predicament they are in. So he didn't allow them yet to see and recognize who he was. But he asked them the questions. What are you discussing together as you walk along? Well, they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one living in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? This is incredible to them. This has taken the city by storm. Everybody knew what was happening. Everybody had heard, if not witnessed, what was going on. And uh, he comes along and wants to know what they're talking about. Well, everybody was talking about this uh, on this weekend. And so they're amazed. Is, does he not know? Of course, they don't know who they're talking to, but uh, does he not know what happened? Well, he plays along with them. What things? <laughs> He wants to hear it from them. Uh, he doesn't need to tell them. He wants them to tell him. And they respond, About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is now the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, and yet they didn't find his body. And they came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of our company went to the tomb, but they did not find him. Just as the women had said, it was empty. They didn't see him. Catch the tone in their voice. Look at the words carefully. We had hoped that he would deliver us from the world and from our enemies. We we hoped, but that was not now. We've lost that hope. We had hoped in him, but they crucified him, and he died. And some of the women amazed us. I mean, this is not a very um, credible witness to these men. Women came back with this story. It's interesting, though, that um, our Lord used the women at the tomb, to catechize the disciples, to go and tell them that the Lord was risen and that they should go and meet him in Galilee and whatever. But this, these two said, well, these women amazed us. Uh, they, they, came, they came back with this report that they didn't find the body, and then they threw in this vision of angels. We had hoped... They amazed us with this really amazing story, empty tomb, and all they saw were angels. And we checked it out, and we didn't find anything except the empty tomb. And so this, this is tremendously sad for them. It, it was like 
we had a brief moment here where our, our hopes were lifted a little bit, but it didn't pan out. So we're going home. We're going back to Emmaus. So this is their account, not only of what had happened, but it's their account of why they are so sad and disillusioned. Uh, there's no more hope. Uh, they're, they're giving up. So Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scripture concerning himself. There's a key word in there I don't want you to miss. It's not a big, heavy, multi-syllable word. It's the word all. Extremely important. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he is going to explain to them all that the scripture said concerning himself. So this word all is going to show up in uh, about three places in this little reply of Jesus. They had a problem which is relived again and again in the life of the church. We have scriptures that we love. We have those we don't read very much. But we only get part of the story. I've never been in a Christian's home where they have an embroidered pillow saying, it is the will of God that you suffer. <laughs> it's not the kind of thing we would embroider. Uh, it's better to have God is love or something like that. You see, they had read the Bible selectively what they wanted to see, what they had hoped for, and they were loving the passages that the Messiah was going to come and drive out the oppressing nations and get rid of the, get rid of the Romans and establish his kingdom, and, and uh, this would be the, the glorious reign of the Messiah. And, and that's, that's the part that they wanted to, to deal with. You see the same dilemma with the disciples. Every time that Jesus starts talking to his disciples that he has to go to Jerusalem where he will be uh, crucified and rise from the dead, the disciples respond by discussing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They're not on the same wavelength at all because they have their focus on the scriptures that they have the most hope for. And unfortunately, we often fall into that trap. We have passages, we cling to them, and uh, yet uh, on occasion we have to be reminded the Scripture also says, and we have to fill out the whole picture. So he rebukes these men for being hard-hearted and slow to believe all the Scriptures. They were not inexcusable here because if they were Christ's disciples uh, they may not be among the twelve but they certainly were with him for three years and they heard the scriptures being taught again and again but sometimes they were listening and sometimes they were not as all the disciples did and so he's going to give them a little lesson here the thesis of his lesson is very clear it was necessary 
for the Messiah to suffer before entering into his glory. That's what he wants to make them aware of. Because they couldn't resolve the tension. Peter tells us that. They had a hard time connecting the suffering of Christ and the glory. Uh, because when the crucifixion came about, it seemed like there was, there was no hope anymore, even though they had heard what Jesus said, but it never registered. So that's what he's going to try to explain to them. And we're told that beginning with Moses, he is going to go through the prophets and through the Old Testament and talk about all the things that the Scripture said about him. It doesn't take long to walk seven miles if you're just walking straight. But if you are hearing what Jesus is saying on this walk, I am sure that there were lots of moments they stopped and pondered and lots of times they looked puzzled and couldn't quite hear what he said and wanted him to repeat it. I'm sure this this little walk turned into quite a long walk because then they get back, it's already getting dark. We don't know exactly what Jesus said on this, but we can piece it together from the things that he had taught and from the things that the apostles would teach later. I am sure that he started in the garden where Adam and Eve did not obey the word of God and uh, because they didn't know it very well. They believed the lie and they plunged the human race into sin. But God redeemed them by their confession of sin and they, they were clothed with the skins of the animals so that they were welcomed into this new relationship with the Lord. But he gave the prophecy that the seed of the woman was going to destroy the seed of the serpent. Initially, the seed of the woman would refer to the entire human race, that they would have victory over all of the satanic forces. But there's a slight problem there, because now that sin had entered into the world, all the human race was disqualified. They had already been defeated by Satan. And they wouldn't have the power anyway to defeat Satan and all his demonic forces. So God himself would have to do it. But in order to fulfill the prophecy, he would have to come into this human race and do it as a human, the seed of a woman. And therefore, he would have the power and he would have the right because he was sinless. This is not a new idea that we've come up with. This is what the church has understood and believed for ages of why God became man. But I'm sure Christ elaborated on a little bit that there was a plan for the humans and they was ruined by sin. And God therefore stepped in and promised ultimate victory over evil. And then he would have had to explain a little bit about the sacrifice that Abel brought Where did they learn to sacrifice? This was the way of worship. And so they would come in and bring the fattest of the firstborn of the flock and and worship the Lord. Uh, This was uh, right and fitting for them to do. And uh, we're also told in the New Testament that they were aware of eschatology. In the days of Enoch, seventh from Adam, Enoch, 
is preaching and proclaiming that the Lord is coming to judge the world of all its ungodliness and all of its wickedness, which they are wickedly committing. This is very early for proclaiming there is coming a judgment because of sin. But in the meantime, a faithful group of believers continued to worship God, and they did so with sacrifices. They did so with the animal that would be offered. And uh, he will make a point out of this, this constant emphasis on the sacrificial offerings that are made. And I'm sure he talked about Abram offering Isaac, just happened to be on the Mount Moriah where he was recently and found guilty and condemned uh, and sentenced to die. But it wouldn't be the end, as of course he will make clear to these people. Since this had been a Passover weekend, uh, there is no doubt that he explained to them the nature of the Passover that was in Egypt, that God was going to judge the Egyptians, but they could escape the judgment of God if they applied the blood to the doorpost, the blood of the sacrificial animal, and they would leave the country as the people of God redeemed from the bondage of Egypt when God destroyed all the Egyptians. But if they were alert and paid attention to the teachings of the law, on uh, the weekend of the Passover, the prophecy was very clearly laid out in the category of the law in Leviticus 23. Because Leviticus 23 legislated the feast of the first fruit. That is, the law said, and it's very specific, the Feast of First Fruit was to be celebrated on the morning after the Saturday, after the Sabbath, after the Passover. Didn't matter what day the Passover came on, on the day after the Sabbath, that's a Sunday always, it would be the Feast of First Fruit. And Paul later was quick to point out that if Christ is the Passover lamb, he's the first fruit from the dead, a resurrection. And I'm sure Jesus uh, delved into that, that there is more to the sacrificial system than just killing of the animals. There is the hope of life and the, the enjoyment of what God's blessing would be. So I'm sure he spent time with the Passover and the Feast of first fruits, and he couldn't have missed the opportunity to remind them that every year in the fall they would have Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. And the essence of Yom Kippur was that the sins of the people would be placed on the scapegoat and led out into the wilderness to die. The sins would be carried away in a ritual of riddance. There had to be a death that would take away all of the sins. And I'm sure he spent time expressing that doctrine to them and reminding. They, they knew these things. They, they had grown up as Jews in the festivals, and sometimes you can be in all these rituals and festivals and miss the whole point along the way. Uh, he would be very clear that while in the Pentateuch you have all of these passages that are about sacrifices and death and animals saying paying, being say, uh, slaughtered in place of the sinner. All of that would be very clear to, to people now since John the Baptist has announced here's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world and he has died on the cross. But he would also remind them that that's not all you have in Genesis and Exodus. 
he would remind them that the prophecy was given through the patriarchs that the scepter would not be departing from the tribe of Judah because God had promised that when Abram and Sarah had children, kings would come from the womb of Sarah. So there would be a king. There would be a monarch. He'd come from the tribe of Judah. He would be the promised king. Uh, and yet you got all of these other passages that talk about suffering and death and sacrifice uh, for these different things in the Israelite economy. But there would be this promise that there's coming a king because God had created humans to have dominion over all the earth, but they don't have it. So one will come who will have it. And uh, I'm sure he spent time with that to try to make sure they remembered that side of these prophecies that were given with regard to the lineage of David and to the ministry of the Messiah. He would remind them that he was supposed to be this prophet like Moses and that they should listen to his words more carefully because he would be able to declare the things that God was doing and uh, they would understand what was happening. And I'm sure he reminded them of the times that the Lord visited them in person, uh, appearing to Abram in, the, in Hebron, uh, to eat a meal in Abram's tent, appearing to Joshua as the captain of the Lord's army, uh, appearing on Mount Sinai as the glory of the Lord, the great I Am. And all of these things that he could mention, it was he. And that should have told them that if he existed before his birth in Bethlehem, then he's not bound by time the way you and I are. So these visions were very important for them to understand the whole teaching of the law and the teaching of the prophets as well. I'm sure he spent a lot of time in the book of Psalms, especially the royal Psalms, which we see quoted most into the New Testament. Um, there is the coronation Psalm in Psalm 2, which is simply taking the Davidic covenant of Samuel and bringing it forward to a coronation ceremony where the king would declare his right to rule. Uh, you're, you are my son, the oracle says. Uh, this day have I begotten you. They didn't quite capture that and the moment of that because the fulfillment of that psalm was not the incarnation. It was the resurrection. Because when Christ ascended into heaven... The wording was fulfilled, this day have I begotten you. He would be the first begotten from the dead. And he is going to be proven, Paul says, to be the son of David by the resurrection. So I'm sure Jesus explained a little bit of that passage, but he couldn't have missed also the Psalm 110, that uh, he came from heaven. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies footstool for your throne and that was always believed by the Jews to be a promise that the Messiah would be coming from heaven and would enter into this world. In fact, even in Judaism they agreed that the Messiah was pre-existent. They wouldn't say eternal, but he had to be pre-existent because he came from heaven. 
and he would come to judge the world. So this was glorious news that, uh, that even in the Davidic Psalms they talked about a king who would be a mighty conqueror and would establish his rule over all the nations. But he would also be the one who would suffer and die. And they should have remembered this because just a couple of days ago, Jesus appropriated the entirety of Psalm 22 with his cries from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all of the things that occurred at Calvary were fulfilling Psalm 22, which the Jewish people had known even before the time of Christ was a messianic psalm. One of the most remarkable cases of blindness in the minds of the Jewish people because while Christ is on the cross, they are taunting him and saying, uh, you know, if God delights, let him deliver him. You know the passage, which is really quoting Psalm 22. They know Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. They know Jesus claimed to be Messiah. So quote from Psalm 22 to taunt him, not realizing at the moment they do that, they are fulfilling the psalm. That spiritual blindness. And I'm sure he reminded them, too, of a very hopeful incident, but a troubling thought that God would not leave or abandon his Holy One to see corruption in the grave. He obviously was going to die, as Psalm 22 said, but he wouldn't stay in the grave. He would not see corruption, but he would be raised from the dead. So that while there was a sad case of suffering epitomized by Psalm 22 and fulfilled at the cross, they should have known the other passages too, that, that there was a glorious future that came after that and not exactly in harmony with the sadness that was there. And his administration would have been well known to them if they had sung Psalm 45, that when the Lord comes to reign on the earth. His kingdom will be a kingdom of righteousness. His, he loves righteousness. He hates wickedness. And therefore, God, his God, has anointed him with joy over all of his fellows. And it's a prophecy of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Very beautiful picture that, that whatever happened at Calvary, whatever happened in his first coming, this lies in the future. He is apart from all of these troubles that are there. And I am sure Jesus spent a lot of time in the prophets because the text says all that the prophets and Moses had to say. We are quite sure that he spent time with Isaiah because he could take them through Isaiah and show, look, the Messiah is going to be this wonder king. He's going to be a champion like Gideon. In the days of Midian, he will come and he will destroy the enemies and the oppressors because his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, all of those things, marvelous. The king in Israel was always the son of God, but all of a sudden the king, according to Isaiah, is going to be the father, which turns the whole equation upside down. A glorious prospect. And he would come in the power of the Spirit, according to Isaiah 11, and he would rule not by hearsay, but his judgments would be true. And not only would he be this wonderful king with, who, with the power of the Spirit, he would change creation, reorder all of creation so the lion could lie down with the lamb and, and the child could play at the serpent's nest and whatever. At, see, Isaiah's vision of peace was not just an absence of fighting. 
It's a condition in the world in which every part of God's creation can fulfill its destiny undisturbed. That's the vision of peace in Isaiah. And they were expecting that. He's going to come and make a new heaven and new earth and get rid of evil and change all of the troubles that are here. But uh, that didn't happen. Uh, Not the way they were expecting it. But instead, uh, he died. Yet they should have known also that Isaiah said he would. That Isaiah prophesied that he was coming. Um, And he was coming into this world starting off as a very tender plant and someone that nobody paid any attention to, but uh, he grew up and people were amazed at him. And then he became the epitome of all suffering in the human race, so much so that they never recognized him or couldn't describe him. It was it was terrible. They jumped to the conclusion, Isaiah says, that that it must be penal. God must be punishing him because he's so suffering. And then they dawn, dawns on them, yes, it is penal, but not for, not for his sins. Uh, and they draw upon the imagery in Isaiah 53 of the scapegoat in the Day of Atonement that uh, the Lord has laid upon him all of our iniquities, and by his stripes we are healed. And yet, if you read that passage carefully, it starts off with the conclusion that he's high and he's lifted up and he's reigning. Now let's back up and tell tell everybody how he got there through his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and what that accomplished. This is the heart of the servant songs and the messianic prophecies, which they should have known. Uh, these are passages that were very familiar to the Jews. They weren't kingship passages, obviously. They were suffering passages, And Jesus will spend some time with that. I'm sure he spent time with Daniel. Uh, How could you not? Uh, Daniel saw the prophecy, the vision, especially with Nebuchadnezzar's statue where all of a sudden there is this stone that is cut out of the mountain without hands, uh, one of the images of Messiah. And he, this stone rolls down the hill and knocks over the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, which represented all the kingdoms of the world. Messiah was going to come, destroy the kingdoms of the world, and that stone would become a great kingdom. This was a wonderful vision they had, that all these pagan empires would be destroyed by our conquering Messiah. And then even more, they record the the vision of um, Daniel, which he sees into heaven. And there he sees the Ancient of Days, the Father probably. And into his presence comes one like the Son of Man. And to that Son of Man is given dominion and power and authority and sovereignty to come and to rule the world. And uh, they knew this was the Messiah. And they also had a proof that he was the conquering Messiah because on the triumphal entry in Palm Sunday, there was fulfilled Zechariah 9. Your king comes riding on a donkey. And uh, the chapter is a contrast between the way somebody like Alexander the Great would come into a city and the way Jesus enters into the city. But he's their king, and they were looking towards that. This is, this is our wonderful Messiah who's going to set the world right. 
until Daniel also sees the vision of the 70 weeks, the calendar of prophecy. And in the middle of that, after 69 weeks, we're told that the Messiah, the Prince, will be cut off and he will have nothing. Be careful. That happens after the 69 weeks, but not in the 70th week. A huge difference. And so there it was clear on the page. The Messiah will come. He's going to bring an end to sin. He's going to bring atonement. All the things are listed there what Messiah is supposed to do. But then he'll be cut off and he'll have nothing. Well, you skip that verse. It doesn't fit the picture of the conquering hero. But I am sure that they would have to be facing that when looking at the prophecies of of the Messiah in Daniel and certainly the twin book in Zechariah because you have again in Zechariah you get these passages of the king and his conquest and whatever and yet at the same time the theme changes he's going to be this marvelous shepherd and he's going to be the leader of his people Israel but strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered that happened on the eve of the crucifixion and the apostles remind us of that and uh, then uh, he adds too that uh, the people will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn that was a disturbing verse but out of all of this suffering of the Messiah Zechariah says a fountain will be opened and it will be for the cleansing and the healing of the people and the forgiveness of sins. And uh, that fountain would be, of course, the provision of salvation and forgiveness from the blood of Christ. So I'm sure Daniel and Zechariah figured prominently in this discussion. And I'm sure there were other things that he dealt with as well to make sure that they were understanding all that the prophets said on the one hand about his kingship and his conquest and his victory and his judgment, but on the other hand, his suffering and his death and uh, also his resurrection, just as he told them when he was teaching them as they walked along by the way. There are three things that come out of this discussion that I think are worth mentioning. Number one, the Messiah, as his theme said, had to suffer before entering into his glory. How could he do both of them? Because both are there in the scriptures. They had to be in a sequence. There could not be the glory until there had been the suffering. There could not be the kingdom until there had been the provision of redemption. So the suffering would come first and the uh, reigning and glory would come later. It is amazing how much the resurrection contributed to hermeneutics in the disciples. Because that's what put it together. They couldn't fit these together, but if he rises from the dead, now we have a whole new picture going. And so he made it very clear that he had to suffer before he could enter into his kingdom. Also, he wanted to make it clear that they understood <clears throat> that the Messiah, the Messiah <clears throat> stands sovereignly over life. He stands apart from it. 
He stands apart from time. He's not limited by time. He's not limited by death. He's not limited by the suffering and the crucifixion. That's what he says to John on the Isle of Patmos. Um, I became dead, but I'm alive again. I mean, only one can do that. That's the power that is there in the Messiah. So if he is prophesied in all these ways in the Old Testament, he can clearly tell to them that he is sovereign over time. The Messiah can't be controlled by beginnings and ends and deaths and persecutions and whatever. He is the sovereign over it. But I think they would have also got the point pretty clearly, nobody rushed Jesus to the cross. It was prophesied from the very beginning. And so while they might say, well, our chief priests and scribes, they delivered over and he was tried and he was condemned. And, uh, you know, if it hadn't been for them, he would have been safe. No, he wouldn't have, because he came into the world to die and to give his life a ransom for sin. They didn't rush him to the cross. That was the will of God, that he should do that. And he came to fulfill it. He might have prayed about it in the garden when he came near to the moment because he was about to do something that had never happened in eternity, that God would taste death for humans. And if there was any other way that this could be done, he prayed. But nevertheless, um, this was the cup that he was given to drink, and he would drink it. So Christ stood over time. Christ came to die. And Christ had to die before he could enter into his kingdom and bring his glory. And so those were the points that they should have gathered from this whole discussion as they worked through what exactly he is telling them. Because I am sure their heads are swimming by now. He must have said many more things in the process. It didn't take long to go through that, but there were so many other things that the prophets mentioned and the Psalms have, and, and even in the historical books, things that were revealing what the Messiah was going to be and what the Messiah was going to do. But it was very clear that when the Messiah came, he would be their God. He would be their shepherd. He would be their king. But he would also be their savior and their redeemer. No wonder he accuses these men of being slow to believe in everything that the Lord had said. If they had been listening to him and how he taught the scriptures and, and all the different things that he had said, uh, these passages should have come home to them quickly. But uh, they were so caught up in, he's the Messiah. And he was riding in triumphantly into Jerusalem. And we're going to see now real action against the Romans and against our enemies. But it was not to be. It's not why he came. That's not what the purpose was for that appearance on earth. And so he is teaching them. And I'm sure the time just uh, sped by, but it must have taken the rest of the day. And so we have had... The movement of sadness leading to disillusionment. And then we have the rebuke that is going to lead to instruction. And now we're going to have the full illumination that is going to lead us into proclamation. So they come near the city of Emmaus, the village.
in verse number 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. This is, this is normal. This is the custom in that part of the world and still even to this day. Uh, it's polite if somebody invites you to do something. It is polite and proper to turn them down because then they will beg you to come. Then they will increase it. No, you must come. We are prepared to have you. Uh, I had a, a student from Jordan and... Uh, he came to study at the seminary, and other students would say, why don't you come over for dinner? And he would say, no, I really shouldn't. They'd say, okay. <laughs> uh, I remember he came in and he said, what did I do wrong? <laughs> I said, these people don't work that way. But Jesus is again testing them. He's making as if he's going to go farther. They don't want him to go. They want him to turn in where they are. And so he turned in with them. Uh, we're told that. They urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. But when he enters into their house and was at the table with them, he took the bread and he gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. That's all they needed to see. He took charge at the table as if he was the father of the family. He breaks the bread, says the blessing, and he chose that moment to open their eyes so that they would see that this is the Christ, this is the Messiah, this is Jesus. And all of the teaching that they had received on the road now is beginning to make sense because here he is in their presence. And they were amazed. And notice what they say. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. The burning heart. It's not often people experience that when they hear sermons and uh, go to church and whatever, but that should be the goal. That if the word of God is so powerful and so magnificent and such a glorious revelation that if time is taken to explain all the ways that God has planned out his, his whole program for the human race and the ministry of the Son, and you begin to see all the parts fitting together and all of the prophecies coming together in this one single person, and that the things that he did in his first coming prepare for the things in the second coming, uh, that too will move you, and uh, you come away with a burning heart. Remember, Jeremiah was a preacher of God's Word. Didn't turn out so well for Jeremiah. Every time he preached, they got angry with him and, and didn't listen to him, and so they put him in stocks, and they mocked him all night. And, and he didn't learn his lesson because whenever they released him from the stocks, he announced judgment on them. 
and bold as anything until he goes home. <laughs> and uh, now he can open up his mind to God. Lord, you have deceived me. <laughs> they didn't show me this in seminary. Uh, <laughs> you've deceived me as often as I proclaim your word. Uh, they're not believing it, and they're just rebuking and, and opposing me, and I become a laughing stock in the town. So I said, I'm not going to say anything more in your name, but I can't, because it is your word that is shut up in my bones as a consuming fire, and I can't control it. We're getting there the other side of this. The minister has to experience the kind of burning heart that Jeremiah had, that it's the most important thing that they have to say to the people. It's the most important message that they will deliver to anybody, and they can't contain themselves because of the excitement and the urgency of it. And if it's, if it's delivered powerfully by the power of the Holy Spirit and prayerfully and fully explaining the text, that, that will pour over into the minds of the people that they'll be transfixed by what is being said. Their hearts will burn within them. And so this was their experience on the road. It's late. It's time to go to bed, but not for this pair. They're going to go witness. Amen. They're going to head back out. And so they get up immediately and return. And I don't think it took them long to get back to Jerusalem. This is just seven miles. They returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true the Lord has risen and appeared to Sam Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way. That is all the teaching of Jesus and how Jesus was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. We have here a marvelous experience of how God transformed their disillusion, their sadness, their, their lack of clarity in what God was doing. He transforms it with the, the clear explanation of the Scripture and then the sign of his breaking the bread in their midst. And that changed them dramatically. He's alive. They go back to Jerusalem and they tell everything that... I'm sure they spent the half the night there explaining all the things Jesus said and all the things that he was telling them that they had missed along the way that he had to suffer. And yet he's alive. He's alive forevermore. And there he was, right in their kitchen, sitting at the table and breaking the bread, just like he did at the Last Supper. And they knew him. They recognized him. There's a parallel to this story. And uh, it's worth your time to think about it. I can't get into it in too much. But you can work on it. It's um, in the Garden of Eden. The Lord didn't spend as much time instructing Adam and Eve, but he certainly gave them his word, clear and indisputable. And yet, they don't quite receive it. They don't remember it. They misquote it. They, they get, uh, get it wrong in transmitting the words that God spoke so that Satan can come easily in and deny it. 
And so the instruction is rejected, and Satan denies it, so they doubt the goodness of God, and they believe the lie that if they eat and disobey God, they'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so they eat, and what happens? Their eyes are opened, but they spoil everything that they look at, because Satan is a liar from the beginning. His promises are worthless. The promise of divine enlightenment was gone. Uh, all they saw was evil and, and wickedness, and so therefore expelled from the presence of God, no longer to eat the bounty of the garden. But the gospel reverses the fall, and here Jesus teaches them clearly his word, more of it now because more has been revealed. And uh, they are moved by it. They are filled with amazement, and, and, and their hearts burn within them. They're not challenging. They're not disagreeing. They're not disobeying. This is, this is amazing to them. So that when they have the breaking of the bread at the table, he opens their eyes. Not to see evil and do it, but to see Christ and to recognize that he is the sovereign Lord of creation, the God of the universe, the Savior, the Messiah, and uh, he has overcome death. This should be a pattern, a paradigm for the church, the church at worship. You go to church because you want to hear from God. And that will come through the reading of the scriptures and the proclamation of the word and the teaching. And if that message, if that teaching is solidly biblical, but also empowered by prayer and through the Holy Spirit, that the people will... will never recover from it. It will be life-transforming and it will resolve tensions and questions. And, and even though there might be someone who died that you didn't expect to die or there might have been a tragedy, you realize that's not the end. That's not the failure. That isn't where things fell apart. God just had some people who would suffer with him the way Christ did. And he wanted them in glory sooner than he chose us. You begin to see things in an eternal perspective because the Savior you worship stands apart from time. And he is not limited by death and the grave. And he doesn't go by our schedule and our timetable. He's our Savior. And uh, if he says to someone, come up higher and serve up here, as opposed to uh, stay down there and minister for another 30, 40 years, it's his choice. We are his servants, and we want to be like Christ. So you want the, the word of God to be that powerful in the hearts and the minds of the people. You can't manipulate it. You can't do it with some kind of a clever plan or a scheme. When it happens, you'll know it because the Spirit of God is going to take it from you and people will respond and you don't even, you didn't expect them to respond that way. You were hoping they respond another way, but this is what the Lord has in mind and they will begin to put things together in their own lives. 
And when they've got that clear understanding of the word in their mind, then they come to the table and they will have holy communion and there will be the breaking of the bread and they will recognize that this represents Christ whose body was broken for us and the cup represents his blood spilt for us and we will discern and recognize the presence of Christ in our midst because of the word and because of the breaking of the bread. Those two work together. Without the exposition, the breaking of the bread would not be that clear and not be that powerful. Uh, with, without the bread, the word is a good teaching, but it doesn't come out into that experience of Holy Communion. Because when you're in taking Holy Communion, you're doing two things. You are reenacting what took place in the upper room with Christ. That's why the leader will take the role of Christ, say the words of Christ, and people reenact that. But you're also reenacting the moment that you first received Christ. As you receive the bread and you receive the wine, which is broken for you. And the two together make the worship service so powerful. The teaching is necessary to understand the communion. The communion is necessary to personalize the teaching. And the two together have a transforming power in the life of the worshiper. And that's what we're trying to do. But if he doesn't transform us first, who'd preach the word and lead the service, it probably won't trickle down to the people. And when they have that kind of an experience, uh, then the witness will follow. My wife had a good friend who was a standard, stayed by member of the church. She'd been there all her life, but we didn't think she was saved. And one, one Easter Sunday, it really hit home. Um, I don't even remember what took place, but this woman after church went up and down the street and knocking on the doors and telling people, He's alive first time she'd ever done anything like that. But this is the result of a powerful worship that is centered on the Word and on Holy Communion, if done properly and if submitted to the Holy Spirit and bathed with a lot of prayer. And you can only imagine what God will do in the minds of the people. They will be able then to face disasters in life and times of sadness and grief and, and things that happen they didn't think should happen. But then they have to realize that God doesn't work by our plans and by our schedules. And we can have full confidence because He was dead and He's alive. And He is known to us in the breaking of the bread. Father, I pray that as we minister Your Word that it will be a burning in our hearts so that we are compelled to speak and that your Spirit would take your words and burn them into the hearts of the people so that we can, we can fully understand more and more about the glory and the power and the plan of Christ so that when we enter into Holy Communion and any other activity of the church, 
it will be life-changing and not just a quick ritual thrown in at the end of the service. I pray, Lord, that this will be our experience. Amen. Well, thank you once again. Anybody have any questions? Over here. I think we're ready to... One question over here. Mike. Thank you, Dr. Ross, for your very enlightening teaching. I had a question. I don't know. It may be more curious. When the Lord broke the bread, mm-hmm. do you think that the nail prints in his hand had anything to do with uh, them recognizing him? It may have confirmed it, but I think it was a supernatural opening of their eyes that God, that the Lord chose that moment when he broke the bread to open their eyes so they recognized him. Um, whether they actually noticed the prints depends what he was wearing, depends how he was sitting. It might have but it, it's balancing out the first part that he withheld their understanding so they didn't recognize him. And he wants to rebuke them. He wants to teach them. He wants to reveal the plan of God to them. And then he wants to reveal himself to them. So I think the opening of their eyes was very much a supernatural act by Christ. They pretty much recognized that the bread was betraying him being broken. Yeah. Yeah, he is... They under they would have at this point now, I am sure, since he's been through Passover and all these things in the teachings, then the words of the Last Supper probably would have come right to mind when they saw him break the bread. This is my body broken for you. And, uh, and that's the moment that what Christ is doing is reinforcing his statement in the upper room when he broke the bread and gave the words of it and chooses that to to remind them. This is what he said, and uh, here he's breaking the bread. They recognize him at that moment very quickly, and he disappears because he's not bound by space or by time. And uh, yet now they understand he wasn't just a prophet. He just wasn't a teacher, um, wasn't just a military hero or whatever, but he was indeed what he claimed to be, the Son of God, and he doesn't, he's not limited by time or space. And uh, this was his revelation of that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Father, we thank you again for this day and for what we have learned and been challenged with as we come to understand our Savior more. Now, Father, we pray you'd grant us safety as we return home, a good night's sleep, a good rest, so that we can prepare to dig into your word again tomorrow. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.